No, 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 no. Come on. Merry Christmas. Thank you all so much. I don't get to say that as much as I like. And so when it's actually time to say it, y'all know I'm all about saying Merry Christmas. So let's make sure we say it. Although Taylor, of course, disagrees with that. He wants us to say Merry Christmas only on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. But we are going to push back against tyranny. I will tell you what. Um, No, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is uh, Chase Woodhouse. I am the pastoral resident at Sojourn Galleria. What that means is I'm in the process of becoming an elder or a pastor here at the church. I also operate as the executive uh, minister, if you will, or executive pastor, just without the technical title of pastor um, yet. Um, so it's good to be with you this morning, and I want to begin, uh, one, by explaining what we're doing. We're, we've just wrapped up First Peter, um, so those of you that have been with us, we, we took an extra week into the time of Advent to finish up First Peter, and so we are beginning um, a new sermon series titled Advent Prophecy, and we're beginning uh, going through different prophecies in the Old Testament that point us to the coming birth of Jesus, and we begin this morning in, in Jeremiah Uh, 33, as I missed the page. There we go, 33. And I want to begin this morning by just giving you a little bit of background as to what's actually happening when Jeremiah receives this word. Because what I want to do then is is take that and put us into a a situation similar to Jeremiah and ask the question. So let's begin just first by understanding what's happening with Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is actually, according to verse 1 in, in chapter 33, he's under guard. What that means is a nice way of saying he's in prison. And he's been in prison because what Jeremiah has been called to do by God is to go and to proclaim the word of the Lord to the people of God. What was he proclaiming? Essentially, not completely this or only this, but he was proclaiming a message of judgment. A message of, of, of discipline for the people of God. The people of God, the Jewish people at this time, have had been rebelling against the Lord. They have not been worshiping the Lord as they were supposed to. And so the Lord is going to discipline them like, like we discipline our children. But I want you to understand real quick the context. This isn't just, okay, Israel slipped up and now there's a harsh discipline that's about to happen. No, no, no. This has been generation after generation after generation of consistent rebellion against the Lord and walking away from the Lord. And so the Lord in his love and in his goodness is going to, are go- is, is going to, are going to, whatever, discipline his children. He's going to come and bring discipline. And the discipline is what Jeremiah is prophesying about. He's telling them there's going to be a foreign nation that's going to come and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy Judah. And in fact, in verse, uh, in chapter um, 32, in chapter 32, at the beginning, you'll see Jeremiah is imprisoned. And what's happening? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has come, and he's starting to bombard Jerusalem. So Jeremiah, in chapter 33, is still in prison. The bombardment is happening. The destruction of Jerusalem has started, and Jeremiah receives a word from the Lord. He receives a message of hope. And in this type of situation, when bombardment is happening, what do you hope to hear from the Lord? What do you hope to hear from God in the midst of bombardment? Now, thankfully, our city is not under bombardment right now. But maybe your life is. 
Maybe your life is undergoing bombardment. Maybe there are trials and tribulation and suffering happening, happening right now. Maybe it's something you've done and you are dealing with the, the, um, the repercussions of your sin. Maybe it's something that you haven't done but is currently happening in your life that's outside of your control. What hope do you hope God brings? I know if I, if I were in Jeremiah's situation, my hope would be that the Lord would come and say, okay, I'm going to stop this bombardment. But that's not the hope that's offered. But the hope that is offered to Jeremiah, ultimately to the people of God, and this morning to us, is a far greater hope. It heals a far greater problem that we have. And it brings us a future that is unfathomable. And so this morning, I want to begin examining this prophecy, this prophecy of hope. But the first question we have to ask is this, does this even apply to us? Because I don't see anything in here about Gentiles. Gentiles being people who are not Jewish. People who are not of the ethnicity of the people of God. So does this, does this prophecy even apply to us? Because if you look at it and you read it, You'll see that it talks about Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will be reestablished as a city of righteousness. You, you see that the, the Levitical on the throne who will be reestablished, sacrifices will be offered forever, and there will be a king on the throne who is uh, righteous, who shall execute justice. It's a beautiful picture, but it seems to be only for Jewish people. It seems to be a prophecy only for this time. And so what we have to do when we come across the Old Testament and we see prophecies that are, are a bit confusing or a bit difficult to understand, does this even apply to our life? We have to use the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament for us. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment. According to Luke 24, where Jesus himself says, Everything in the Old Testament is about him. So Jesus is the filter through which we look at the Old Testament. It's like this, okay? I don't know if you guys remember. I don't even know what they're called. Um, but if you get like a kid's book or a kid's activity book or a coloring, I don't know what it is. And you see those red squares. You know what I'm talking about? Like a red square, there's like a little bit of color in there. You can kind of see. Um, there's shapes. But it says, it. hey, there's a word hidden here. There's something hidden in this red box. And what do you have to do? You have to put on the glasses. The glasses that are colorful, or I don't know what they do. They just change the little red box. And when you put the glasses on, you're actually able to see in the red box what the word is, what the hidden message is. The, the New Testament are the glasses. The red box is the Old Testament. Sometimes the red box is very clear. It's easy to understand. And sometimes the red box is a little bit difficult to understand. And we need the New Testament glasses to put on in order to understand. So all that to say, we're going to examine briefly, does this prophecy even apply to us? Or are we just reading this and it's, it's for ethnically Jewish people in which everybody else in here that's not Jewish, uh, too bad. So briefly, it's only going to take me 20 minutes. I'm just kidding. Um, I want to talk about how we know that this applies to us. Number one is Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 31. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you basically what Paul talks about is that we, the Gentiles, have been grafted into the people of God. It doesn't matter anymore if you are ethnically Jewish 
you have been, if you come to faith in Christ, and we'll explain why Jesus matters here, but if you have come to faith in Christ, you have been grafted into the people of God. John 10, when Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, and he talks about that he is going to gather sheep into his flock. He is going to establish a flock of sheep that are his. He then says to the Jewish people that there are other sheep and other flocks that I am going to bring in. So Jesus, Paul, the whole New Testament convey this idea that the true Israel of God are not people who are ethnically Jewish, but rather those who have faith in Christ. They are the true Israel of God. They have been grafted in. And so if you are a Christian this morning, if you have claimed, asked Jesus to save you, and you are now his, then this prophecy applies to you this morning. This has hope for you this morning, which sounds great, but also brings up a lot more questions. Why do we need a king? There is no king. We're in America. We got rid of a king. Why do we need a king? What do we do with this idea of a priesthood? What, what do we do about that? And why do we need a home? Because that's essentially what's, what's talked about here. This is the hope that the Lord is bringing to the people, that there would be a king that comes, there would be priesthood established, and there would be a home. So as the people of God this morning, let's dive in and actually see what hope does this bring for us this morning what hope do we actually have for those who are in christ and for those who aren't christians yet the opportunity is here to receive a great hope so let's let's look at it um the first is that there will be a branch that is established i'm going to read just a few of the verses verse 15 and 16 and, and some of 17 verse 15 in those days and at that time i will cause a righteous branch to spring up for david and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And he even keeps going on and said, look, as the sun rises and the sun sets, as night comes and day comes, so will it be for this promise. This always happens. God continues to allow the sun to rise and the sun to set. That surety is what is given to this king. There is going to be a king on the throne of David. But here's what's been happening. What's been happening at this time is there's been a king established. First Saul, he was rejected. Then David. David was established. And he was overall a man who loved the Lord, who followed God. However, if you read it, you'll see he was nowhere near a perfect man. But as they continued to have more and more and more kings... What happened was consistently the king rebelled against the Lord and led the people away from the Lord. Generation after generation, there were bad kings after bad kings after bad kings. And there were some times where a king would step in and he would do what he was supposed to do. And he would honor the Lord and lead the people correctly. But by and large, there has been consistently poor king after poor king after poor king. And I want to briefly just explain what what was the point of having a king in the first place? The point of having a king in the first place was that they were to be the image bearers of God. Now, we are all created in the image of God. Absolutely. This Actually, it's a great theological point that we can't get to today. 
that the king for the people of God were to be the image bearers of God. What that meant was it's almost like they were a statue. They were supposed to correctly reflect the glory of the Lord. They were supposed to lead the people in total truth, in total righteousness, and, and help the people serve the people. Be a king full of justice, a king full of grace. A king to which we could look to and say, yes, lead me. You will lead me in the path of righteousness. And, of course, what I just shared is that they consistently failed in this. And so the Lord is causing the kings to actually be completely removed. They're being torn down. And, in fact, in other prophecies about a branch that will come up from David, it talks about there is a stump for the king of David. That means... The, the, the Davidic throne has been cut down. It's been destroyed. But from this stump, there will come a branch. There will come a king who is perfectly just, who is holy, who is righteous, who will lead the people in grace and in truth. He will be a beacon of hope. He will show the people the path of God. He will truly be the one who is the correct and perfect image bearer, the one who correctly shows us who God is. This is the hope that the people of God, in the midst of bombardment, their city is being destroyed. This is what God tells them. There is someone who is coming who will lead you in righteousness. There is someone who is coming who will establish a city of justice and righteousness. There is someone who is coming who will love you dearly. This is the hope that is offered here. So who is this branch? Who is the one that would come? It is none other than Jesus. And I could spend 30 minutes explaining to you all of the ways in which Jesus announces and proclaims. John the Baptist, others proclaim that Jesus is the, the branch that would come out of David. We don't have 30. I mean, we do have 30 minutes, but I'm not going to do that to you. We don't have 30 minutes to go over, so I'm just going to give you a, a few things. Um, number one, think about the actual birth of Jesus story, what happened. Think of one, just think of the wise men. Whoever they were, however many they were, wherever they came from, came from, they came and offered gifts to Jesus. These are kingly gifts. You don't offer these gifts to random babies. It doesn't work like that. Gold, incense, myrrh, those are gifts that are brought to a king. So when Jesus is born, the wise men are proclaiming, this is the king. Let alone the star that was over Bethlehem, the actual birthplace of Jesus. That's a, a, a prophecy about Jesus coming as the king. Not only that, but John the Baptist, when he comes onto the scene, right, he does say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We'll get to that in a little bit. But he also announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. And when Jesus comes, one of his main messages is the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because the king has arrived. And even just, just the last thing, notice, remember, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem to die, he rides on a donkey. Riding into a city on either a horse or a donkey meant two things. If you ride in on a horse, that's a king coming into the city to conquer the city, to destroy the city, to take it over. A king who rides in on a donkey, which is a prophecy in the Old Testament, a king who rides in on a donkey, he's not coming to conquer. He's not coming to destroy. He's coming to declare peace. All of these and more are signs that Jesus is this king that was promised. 
And this is such good news for you and for me. But if we're honest, I think for some of us, it's kind of like, okay, that's, that's great. But like, we don't have this idea of a king. We're in the United States, we literally kick the king out, right? We don't, we don't understand this. So I just want to stop and try to apply this to our lives. Why do we need a king? We need a king because you and I have no idea what it means to be righteous on our own. We have no idea the path we are to follow. We cannot follow the path of righteousness. And, and, and really, I think what happens for us is we don't like this idea of a king. Because what a king is, is one who demands full submission. You don't come to a king and say to a king, yeah, I like you. Sign me up, just not for these certain things that you're demanding. Not these certain aspects. But you have to understand, a king is a king. When it talks about Jesus being a king, he is coming and he is demanding full submission. Why? Not because he's a killjoy. Because he leads us in the path of righteousness. Well, what is the path of righteousness? The law of the Lord. Okay? And here's the thing. When we look at the law of God, we might think of it as like, oh, well, this is robbing something of me. We are utter fools to think that. That God would rob us of happiness or joy. God loves us. Yes? Amen? We read that John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Right? If he is God, that means he's smarter than you. That means he knows more than you. And he says that he loves us. When he says, do this, when he says, don't do this, do you know why he's saying that? Because he loves you. I'm going to tell my daughters to not run out into the street because they're going to get killed. Why? Because I love them. I'm not trying to rob them of playing in the street. I'm trying to protect them. The good news that Jesus is the king is he loves you. But he also demands full submission. You can't come to Jesus and keep what you want. He says, if you come to me, if anybody wants to have me, and you say to me, I would like to keep my family, I'm going to love my family more than you, or I'm going to love my wealth more than you, or I'm going to love this aspect more, and I'm not going to submit to what you ask, you have no part in him. He says that, not me. I'm, not te- I'm telling you what Jesus has said. He is the king. But notice, he's not a king that comes for righteous people. No, 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 no. He doesn't come for righteous people. He comes for sinners. What was his nickname? The friend of sinners. So some of you in here look at a a king and you're like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I want to submit to this. But some of you in here might be saying, you know what? I like this idea of Jesus being king, but, man, I've screwed up way too much. There's no way that I can be with a king of righteousness. I see that I am completely and totally unrighteous and may... I remind you ever so gently and lovingly that Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. He hung out with prostitutes, tax collectors. He was known not to go for those who think themselves healthy, but he went to those who were sick. Not only physically sick, but rather those who are sinners, those who know they need something. This king who was coming and who did come is a king who demands all submission because he loves you, because he knows the right path for you, because he cares for you, because he's your shepherd. And he knows that you are unrighteous. And he has come for you. Now, here's the thing. The king 
can't fix your unrighteousness in the sense of the Old Testament. The king doesn't do that. The priests do. So the question remains, okay, we understand that, that Jesus is this branch that has come, and he has established a kingdom. This kingdom seems really nice. But you and I know we're sinners. It doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've lived. You know you've done wrong. And this kingdom of righteousness sounds amazing, but the reality is is that you and I can't get there. We need someone to step in. We need priests. In the Old Testament, the priests were the mediators between God and man. They were the ones who stood before God, and what would they do? They would offer sacrifices in order that the people might be cleansed from their sin. In order that the people might be cleansed from their sins. Now, here's the problem. In this text, it says that the Levitical priesthood would be established forever. And sacrifices would be offered forever. Here we are in 2023. The temple that was in Jerusalem is no longer there. It doesn't exist. The Levitical priesthood is gone. There are no priests. We don't know ethnically in the Jewish, in the Jewish people. They don't know who's Levitical uh, of the tribe of Levi and who's not anymore. There are no Levitical priesthood, and there are no more sacrifices. So the question that we have to ask is, is the Lord lying? Is he wrong? What happens here with this idea of the priesthood being established? Once again, we've got to put the New Testament glasses on. We have to use the New Testament in order to understand what seems to be a problem in the Old Testament. And when you put your glasses on, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that there are no more sacrifices to be offered. No more animal sacrifices to be offered. But what it does say is that there is a priest and there is a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 7 says that Jesus is not only the righteous branch, the king overall, but he is the final priest. He is the priest that wasn't born in the tribe of Levi. He was born in the order of Melchizedek. Okay? That's a long story. I don't have enough time to get into it. But basically, Jesus comes from a line that's outside of the Levitical priesthood, but still within the line of the priest. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus does do things in his ministry that prove he is the priest, the the final and greater high priest. One, he tells multiple people that they are now cleansed from sin. This wasn't the role of the king. This was the role of the high priest. This was the role of the priest. To say that someone is cleansed from sin means that he is mediating between God and this person. And he is declaring them to be clean from sin. That our sins are proves that Jesus is God. Only God can tell us that our sins are forgiven. His teaching reflects the role of the priest. On and on I could go to establish that Jesus is this final priest. But the New Testament does that for us. So we see this beautiful reality of a king in righteousness, and we know that we sin. We know that we fall short. We know that something's wrong with us. How do we know that something is wrong with us? How do we know that deep down we feel this? Because you and I are often like Lady Macbeth. I don't know if you know the uh, play of Macbeth. But Lady Macbeth goes and she kills lots of people with her husband, right? And she becomes so troubled over all the people she killed What does she do? She starts sleepwalking at night and sleep talking. And do you know what she says and does? She keeps trying to wash her hands. 
I can't get this thought off. It doesn't come out. She feels such a deep shame over what she does. She's trying to cleanse herself. She's trying to get this evil that she's done off of her, but it doesn't work. That is the reality that you and I experience every day. We try to wash our hands of the sins that we have done, but we do it in different ways. We'll do it by pursuing love. We want someone to love us. We know we are not worthy of, we are broken. We are sinful. We want someone to love us, to affirm that we really are good and worthy. And so we'll run off and pursue love at whatever cost. We'll try to cleanse ourselves up by, by building a nice life of wealth, of big house, whatever it is. We try to build ourselves this life of security to where we don't have to deal with the inner tur- turmoil that's there. Um, we'll try to be very pious. We'll try to follow God's word as best we can to try to keep his, his word in order to cleanse what's in us. We'll try to serve people. We'll devote our lives to helping those who are in need in order to cleanse ourselves. But what this text offers us is a king who is also a priest who offers a sacrifice that you and I might be cleansed. Because everything that we try to do to clean ourselves up is not going to work. Because you and I are going to consistently sin and go and continue and continue and continue. So what do we need? We need an advocate. We need one who stands in between God and offers us and us and offers a sacrifice for us. And when Jesus was born, about 33 years or so later, he became that final sacrifice. Blood must be spilt in order that you and I might have a right relationship with God. And Jesus was that sacrifice. When he died on the cross, that is the punishment that you and I deserve. All of the wrath of God that you and I deserve was poured out upon Jesus. And then three days later, he rises from the dead. And where does he go? He ascends on high to the right hand of the Father. And what does he do according to the New Testament for us forevermore? Advocate. He's our mediator. He is our eternal high priest. That when the accuser, when Satan goes before God and he says, look at what Chase has done. Look at his evil heart. Look at his wickedness. Jesus steps in and says, yes, but I have paid for everything that he has done. He is mine and I am his forevermore. This is the hope that's being offered here. This priesthood that's being established forevermore where sacrifices are offered forever, that's Jesus. He forever stands as the high priest and as the final sacrifice declaring to God every single time you sin, I have covered her sin. I have covered his shame. I have made them mine. In the midst of bombardment, when a city is being destroyed and the kingship is being torn down and the Levitical priesthood is being torn down, this is the hope that is offered. There is one who is coming who will make it right. But he doesn't just do all of that. It doesn't end there. This life is not it. The end. But he is coming. And he is coming to establish Jerusalem forevermore 
as a city, which in which it's called the Lord is our righteousness. When, when it says that, when it says Jerusalem will be called the Lord is our righteousness, do you know what that means? It basically is saying that all the inhabitants of this city are righteous and declare forevermore that the Lord is our righteousness. Something happens in Jerusalem to where these people are righteous and holy and declare forevermore that the Lord is their righteousness. Now, I've not been to Jerusalem, but I read enough about it to understand that that's not the reality of Jerusalem today. In fact, that's not the reality anywhere today. There is no perfect city. There is no safe dwelling place. There is no land of righteousness and justice. So once again, is this real? Is this coming? What, how, do we, how are we to understand this text? We have to put on the New Testament glasses again. And we see that in Revelation, in the final chapter, or 21, I believe it's 21, what comes down? Jerusalem. The new city of God comes down. What is Jerusalem here? Jerusalem is a city that God is creating. Jesus is renewing all things, and he is establishing a home for his people, for those that have been cleansed from their sins. Jesus is making a home for them, and it will be a perfect city where he will reign forevermore. See, what's happening right now is Jesus is on the throne, and he's conquering. He is going, and his kingdom is spreading throughout the globe. The gospel is going forth. People who have never heard the gospel are hearing it and are becoming Christians. Christianity is exploding across the world. Jesus is conquering, and there will come a day when all of the descendants of Christ will be brought into this new Jerusalem. And notice it says, um, verse 22 is amazing. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, host of heaven being the stars, okay, as the stars cannot be numbered, and the sands of sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priesthood who ministers to me. What does this mean? What are these descendants? Well, the, 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 uh, the line about the stars and the sand, that should pull you back to Abraham. That's a promise that Abraham was given, given that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would be as numerous as the stars and as much as the sand. But here, that same line is given to the offspring of David and the offspring of the Levitical priests. Well, if, if the scriptures are true, and Jesus is this final high priest, and Jesus is the true king, that means that Jesus' descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Now, okay, does Jesus have kids? No. But what does he tell us in John 3? You want to be in the kingdom of heaven? You must be born again. Born of the Spirit of God. You see, what Jesus is doing is he is fulfilling what Abraham pro was promised. He is fulfilling that Abraham will have descendants, descendants not necessarily born of physical birth, but rather born of spiritual birth. And those who come to Jesus will be the descendants of the king, to where they will be as numerous as the stars. Do you see the connection that I'm making? Jesus tells us to be born again. If you want to come into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so here in this text, when it talks about that the king will have descendants as numerous as the stars, that's because they're born of faith. Jesus is fulfilling Adam's commission. Adam was told to go and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Jesus is doing that. 
he is multiplying his descendants, not through physical birth, but through spiritual birth. And he is expanding the kingdom around the globe, and he is putting the kingdom under the reign of God. He is fulfilling all the scriptures. He is the point. That's the good news for us this morning. He is that point. And what does it result for us? It results for us in a home, in a place where God reigns, where justice is established and righteousness where there is peace. So here's a question for us this morning. What does this mean for us? We're not under a bombardment right now, but your life may be. And if your life isn't right now, it will be. Scriptures are very clear. You will suffer. In this life, you will suffer because your Savior suffered. But this hope this morning that is given to us by the prophet Jeremiah is that the king reigns. Everything that happens to you is for your good and his glory. That is a promise of scripture. Everything that happens to you is for your good. Why? Because Jesus reigns. Everything bows down to him. That means when, when, the, when, when everything just blows up, you can know that God is working it out for good. You can know that he is going to bring you home. You can know that when you sin horrifically, and you will and I will, you have an advocate who not only stands in front of the accuser and says, absolutely not, but his blood was spilt so that that reality would be true. So you might be fully adopted, fully welcomed, and brought in to the household of God. You may be fully forgiven. And we're going home. This isn't it. This life here, it's terrible. It's wonderful and it's terrible. Christmas is a great picture of that. You can have such great joy in Christmas time and such horrifically terrible times at Christmas time. Right? We're going home. This isn't it. We get to go be with the king and watch what he establishes and worship him forevermore. So don't drop your anchor here. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now. We're almost home. That's a song. We're almost home. And for those of you who are here this morning who have not asked this king to come and to save you, to, to be your sacrifice that you need to cleanse you from your sins, you have not come and bent the knee before the king who loves you and who cares for you far more than anyone else ever has. And who knows what is right for you and good for you. May I plead with you and encourage you, come, bend the knee. Come, ask this king, how's your life been going so far? You like it? Been going okay? Probably not, because it doesn't for me. We're so broken, we need a king who is a priest, who is the sacrifice, who is bringing us home. We need that. So if you haven't come and asked Jesus to save you, may I? May I encourage you to come to him because his arms are wide open. And he declares to you this morning to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. That is the yoke of the king, rest. So come this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to hear this word. Oh, Lord, I, I need this word so much. Life feels like a bombardment for me right now. 
Lord, thank you that you've given us a hope. Thank you that you've not abandoned us. Thank you that you are with us. Father, I pray that you would um, pray that you would help us to submit more fully to you. Pray that you would help us to worship you. And I pray for those who don't know you, Father, I pray that they would come and submit their lives to you and ask you to save them. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm looking for Jeff. Awesome. Now we're going to move over here.